Last week, and in the first part of chapter 9, Romans, there were two instances specifically where God chose one son over another, right? You remember that from last week? It was where he chose Isaac over Ishmael. And then again, in that next generation where it was Jacob over Israel or over uh, Esau, I'm sorry, Jacob over Esau. <laughs> Keep me straight here tonight. The question is, and where we kind of were kind of, it was a little bit of a kind of a cliffhanger there because it, this chapter does kind of come to a, to a question as Paul is laying out this case of God's choice and how he foreknew that he chose Israel and knew that Israel would go away from him and run, run off in their direction. And he knew that Israel was going to do this. And then Paul lays out, well, he chose, he chose Isaac over Ishmael, the seed of Abraham. He chose Jacob over Esau. And the question that you come to in the second half is, can this be right? Can God's choice be right? I mean, is it just what God has done? Is God's choice a just choice? And this is a very interesting question. You say, well, I'm not, this isn't a question that you ask every day questioning the justice of God. But this is a question that, that, that people raise. Maybe not in the, in, the, in the case of salvation or the election of Israel to be the chosen, but there is a challenge, there is a question that is brought and has been brought throughout history of whether or not God is a just God, whether his decisions are just, whether his choices are just, whether the things that he has declared to be the way they are, whether they, that can be just. And that is the ultimate question really in this passage. And so it really comes down to, and, and this is, and, and really what Paul's doing is he's kind of voicing this question because he knows that this is like for someone that might object to everything that he's saying, he knows that this is the question. And so what is the, what is the proper response of man? Is it to say, well, God, you're not just. See, look at this, how you've done this. These, you've just chosen. And you could charge him like with some, you know, just arbitrary choices. And these choices are unjust. But, but is man's response correct? Is man's response to God, is that correct? So let's take a look at the rest of this passage in, John, in uh, Romans 9 and see what the answer is. Pick it up, verse 14. It says this, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the script, scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? 
For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained a righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the righteousness, to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Wow, a lot there. So Paul leads, leads up to this question, is there unrighteousness in God? Is God's choice, is it unjust? Is it unrighteous? Is it not right? Is God unfair? And he says, certainly not. God forbid, right? I mean, we serve a God who is, who he, 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 he is God. He's that perfect God. He's uh, all powerful. He's all knowing. And he is a loving God. Um, it actually, if God is, if God is an unjust, if God were to be unjust, if he, if he were to be uh, unrighteous, if there weren't ultimate goodness found in him, uh, there, there would actually end up to be an incoherence in, in, in the concept of God. Uh, the, the, the goodness of God is tied up in the very concept of God, that he's a good God uh, and he's all powerful. And so there must be information, there must be stuff that we're not privy to. There must be information, as, as much as we'd like to think of ourselves as having attained to some level of knowledge and some level of understanding, um, we have to remember that we are mankind and uh, fallible at that, and he is God, and he is righteous, and he is infallible. So the question is there, is there unrighteousness in God. 
And the answer is certainly not, absolutely no. God's election is just and righteous. God's choice is just and righteous. So then he gives an example of God's righteous righteousness in the way he has conducted himself with Israel. And the example is found in what happened with, with Israel in the time of Moses. Look at that verse four, uh, 15. He says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. Now this particular instance where he says this is following the instance in, in Exodus chapter 32, you will be familiar with that passage because that is the passage where, of course, Moses has gone up onto the mountain to be with God and he's receiving the Ten Commandments. And so it was a period of time where he was up there receiving, speaking with God and God uh, delivering to him through the angels. And we, we learn all this from Exodus and it's, it's reiterated to us in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews and, and, and so he's up there for 40 days, 40 days and 40 nights. And, uh, and the people down at you know, Israel who had been brought out of Egypt, they had just kind of really given up on Moses. In fact, if you read Exodus 32, they actually said, we don't know this guy that brought us out of Egypt and brought us out here in the middle of nowhere to this mountain. We don't know what's happened to him. For all we know, he's, he's just gone. And so they pressed upon Moses' brother, Aaron, to make for them a god, really. And so that's, this is the incident of the golden calf, where they basically return right back to the pagan religion of Egypt, which is really the pagan religion of Babylon. Remember when God confused the languages at Babel and confused the people and, and sent them out in, in boundaries and nations there in, in Genesis 11 and, of course, in De Deuteronomy 32, they took with them the pagan religion of Babylon and then it just became known under different nomenclatures, different names of the gods and, and things. And so they went back to this worship of, of, the, of the golden calf and all the rest of it. So then Moses comes down the mountain and what does he see? He, he hears this, this stuff going on, this music, this partying, this, all this stuff going on, and he comes down and he just becomes livid. He just becomes angry. And, and um, man, it's a very interesting conversation that Moses has when he comes down, when he has that conversation with his brother. He said, how did this happen? How did they press upon you to, to do this? And you know, I mean, when you're, I don't care how old you are, you see this on Cops, you know, remember the show Cops? You know, these guys, the cops pull these guys over and, you know, they've just done all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, and they always ask them a question and they all, it's unbelievable, like, what people come up with, the stuff that comes out of their mouth. And, and Aaron's brother was no different than that. It's like, you know... Moses comes down the mountain. It's like an episode of Cops, you know. <laughs> what did you do? And how did the people press upon you to do this? And he said, hey, look, the people came to me and they wanted to do this. And so they brought, brought golden stuff to me. And, 
And um, we just, you know, put it together and, and, and out of the fire came this golden calf. You know, we don't know. We don't know what happened. Just out of the fire came. Oh, my goodness. Unbelievable. You know, this is the setting where, where you know, immediately in that passage when, when, when he says that. Of course, well, let's finish the story. So Moses is like, Rah! you know, and he, he takes the, he takes the golden calf and he basically just destroys it and crumbles it down to like dust. And he throws it into this water and he literally makes the, makes the people drink the water of this, you know, just the dust, the ashes of, of this golden calf. And he says, look what you've done. This is just, this is a complete mess. And this is where he asks, who is, who is with me? Who is on the Lord's side? And who's on this other side? And it was at that moment that the, the entire tribe of Levi came over and stood with Moses and carried out the judgment of the Lord on that day. It's a kind of a tough passage because this is the day that he's coming down the mountain with the law of God. This is the actual day that this is happening. And it's incredible. And so in the passage, 3,000 people are brought to death in the judgment of God that God brought upon the camp that day. And uh, it's, it's an interesting parallel to that and the, the day the law is given and the day that the church is founded on the day of Pentecost following the resurrection, right? Because you have 3,000 that died in the judgment of God in this, this golden calf situation and the Levites uh, basically you know, becoming that tribe that, that presented themselves as being on the Lord's side and, and, and all, of, all the rest of it. And of course, then they become the tribe of, they become the, tribe of, of, of the priesthood, right? And, uh, and so it's an incredible picture. And then you have fast forwarding to the, to the founding of the church on the day of Pentecost. And what does the closing uh, uh, description there say? That 3,000 were added to their number that day on the day of the founding. So, it, so it's, a, it's a very inter interesting thing. So then at the, at the end of it, at the end of it, um, Moses has this discussion with God and they kind of go back and forth. And at the end of it is where God basically says, I will have mercy. I will have mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And this is the, this is the, the point that Paul's making back here in Romans 9. Okay, so, so with all that history, what is the point back in Romans 9? The point of Romans 9 is you have no standing to even charge God with anything in this. Had he just left you to your own self, you'd be under the wrath and under, the judge, under his judgment because you just went out and did crazy stuff. And so now you're going to sit here and listen to this and somehow charge God with an injustice, with an unrighteousness, with somehow that his choices are arbitrary and not right and not just. Said if, 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 if God would have just left you to your own demise, you would have just, that's, that would have been your situation. But he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so the idea is that when God has mercy, it is just, it's 100% his choice. Amen? And that, it, and that, is, that, is, what the, that is what mercy is. Um, mercy, 
Well, grace is giving what you don't deserve. And mercy is not getting what you do deserve, right? And, uh, and so when you don't get what you deserve, as Newsboy sang, it's a real good thing, right? Look that song up, uh, you know, on iTunes this evening when you get home. When you don't get what you, do, what, what you deserve, it's a real good thing. <laughs> and uh, instead of somehow turning it around and charging God with some type of injustice or unrighteousness, um, yeah, that would be a bad thing if, if, if water fell off of the podium. So then he goes on, and to make, to, you know, just to, to give another example, he says, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. Well, I was starting to understand this until we got to the end of verse 18. I was starting to really wrap my mind around this. And then he says, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he hardens. Well, the example of Pharaoh is exactly that perfect example. Because what happens with Pharaoh, and if you look through that whole passage there in in the early part of Exodus, as Moses goes in with his brother to ask, Israel, ask of Pharaoh that Israel would be released from bondage. He, it says he hardens, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And, and there's all these passages where Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then finally it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, and so, so God confirmed in Pharaoh the hardness of his own heart of his own choice. And so in that sense, God chooses, ultimately. And, and so God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it was only after Pharaoh had hardened his heart, and I believe it's 10 times specifically, that, that it says there in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And as I said last week, I believe I said this, that be very careful if you find yourself in, in, a, in a road of rebellion, on a track of rebellion, because you can get going down that path and you can harden your heart and then you can harden, you can have that opportunity. And each time that Moses and Aaron came back, Moses and Aaron came back after one of the plagues, there was another opportunity for him to, to relent. There was another opportunity for him to, to respond. But then he hardened his heart again. He hardened his heart again. And so what happens is as you harden your heart, then God confirms and God hardens the heart of whom he will harden. Verse 19, you will, you will say to me then, okay, so, so Paul says, okay, so now that we've got this cleared up, here's your next, here's your next objection. Yeah, I love Paul. <laughs> I, love, I love just the way he thinks because he's just, he goes through it in such a way to just constantly answer the objections. And uh, he says, why does he, why does he still find fault then? Why does he find fault? with us. Well, because he chose, it doesn't change the fact that you chose and you hardened your heart and you chose to do what you have done. 
And the fact that he had foreknowledge of it and the fact that he chose and the fact that his foreknowledge, in his foreknowledge, there was this grand selection, there was this what we call divine election, doesn't alleviate man's responsibility before God for his own actions. And so uh, Paul answers it like this in verse 20, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Who are you to reply against God? And I think the answer that I see as I read this and I reread it and I reread it, that the answer that I see is that every time that man tries to feel like or may, may, may feel like, oh, we've got God, we've got God cornered. We finally got God cornered. He, see, see we've, we've proven that he's unrighteous. We've proven that he's unjust. Whenever you feel like that, you need to turn the mirror back upon yourself and realize, oh, no, whoa, whoa. Who am I to even, who am I to even bring a charge against God? Who, he says, verse 20, oh, man, who are you to, to reply against God? L- look at yourself. God, God has orchestrated. God has chosen perfectly. God has done everything according to, to absolute perfection in the way he operates. He's perfect in all of his ways, right? And who are you to reply against God? Then he, then he goes, he says, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And I don't know exactly how, if you, if you wanted to think that through and think, well, you know, God is sitting here with a potter's wheel and he's just sitting here and well, let me just, you know, I'm going to make a really nice vessel, you know, like a bowl to put fruit in or something on the table, you know, on the center of the table, you know, one of these fruit bowls, you have one bowl, you set it on the front table and you've got all your fruit or maybe it's a, it's a vase and you're going to put some flowers in it. And then he says, okay, I've got that one done. Now, now I'm going to make a spittoon. <laughs> I'm going to make a, this vessel where I come in the house and just, that's where I'm going to spit. You know? This, was a, this, this, this is kind of the picture. This is, this is, there, there were vessels of honor and there was vessels of dishonor, right? And, and, and so, you know, how, how is it that the vessel of, of dishonor gets chosen? How is, the, how is it the vessel of honor is chosen to be a vessel of honor? Um, you know, this is, this is the age-old question, but the, at the end of the day, God has, God has his choice that he's made, and he's made that um, according to his foreknowledge, and he has made that choice. And so in that sense, you can say, well, if you harden your heart and you harden your heart and you harden your heart over here and then God hardens your heart and you become a vessel of dishonor. Well, God, God knew that from the beginning. God knew that you were going to do that. And he also knew the people that would, would respond to him. He's also, he also knows the people that, that, will, that, you know, the, that their hearts will become soft, that they will, will see uh, God, they will see Christ and, and the beauty of Christ and, and turn to him. So at the end of the day, the, 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 the vessel can't, can't look up to the potter and say, well, how, how is it that you've made me like this? 
Um, he, he has that choice. He has that ultimate choice. And his choice is, as we've said already, his choice is just. And, and if left to ourselves and left to our own choices, we would have all been those vessels of dishonor, right? But he chose to give everyone a choice and there were those that, that make that choice to serve him. Amen? So then Paul, it kind of explains it then. He says, what if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So this is, this is you know, you, you kind of have to, if you're, if you're going to get past, you know, there's some people that just say, you know, just take me out of this chapter and just, you know, <laughs> this is, you know I just want to know, you know, God's good and I love him and I'm on my way to heaven. And, you know, for some people that's good enough, you know. But for a lot of people, there's a whole world out here that, that, that looks on. And at the end of the day, there's a coherence to what God has done and who he is and his person and his actions and how he is, in, how he is governed and how he has been involved with man. And I believe, I believe it's ultimately coherent. Even, even some of the harder questions that people throw out, like is God, was God just when he gave the command to the Israelites to, to drive out the, the Canaanites, right? And people say, oh, well, you know, Israel drove out the Canaanites. Could God even be a just God at all? I mean, look what he just, you know, look at the command. And, you know, the atheists, the modern atheists are, are famous for raising this particular question. But the question is answered by looking at the abominable acts of the Canaanite culture and the Canaanite people and the fact that God allowed it, allowed that, the, that people to continue in that and the Bible tells us for 400 years. I mean, God would have been just to just step in and just... But he, he allowed that people to conduct themselves in that, those abominable ways with the, the false religion, the pagan religion that was all tied up into sexual gratification and ultimately the, 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 the sacrificing of the children on the brazen arms of Molech and, and the whole thing and, and this whole thing. Can you believe it? He let it go for 400 years? I mean, you almost want to scratch your head at that. <laughs> for 400 years you let that? And if... And if, and if a nation becomes like that, you know, God, basically God charges Israel. He says, if you do the same thing, the land will spit you out. Don't think that you're on any type of ground, that you're just on easy street with this. Because he warns them, he says, when you come into the land that I'm giving you, hey, I'm giving you a land. You're inheriting a, uh, you're inheriting a, land, a land that I'm giving you. It's, it's God's land, right? And he's given, given the land to them and, 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 and dispossessing this people that was, that was an abominable people. Like, like even, like, like if, if, if the Canaanites were on the earth today, well, I, I, I can't almost say this, but what I was going to say is if the Canaanites 
were a nation today, we would all say, they're, they're, they're not, it's, we, 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 we have to do justice by mankind. Look at what these people are doing. I'm just going to let the Lord speak there and allow you to draw your own conclusions on that and, 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 the, and, the, and the natures of our cultures uh, and, and the parallels of what we're, what we're actually witnessing. So whenever man kind of rises up and says, we're uh, to God, whoa. You've got to realize where it is. We're literally on the potter's wheel. <laughs> and we have, a, we, have a, we have a choice that's been given to us. And we have, we have an opportunity to obtain mercy. And God says, and God is saying, I am going to have mercy on whom I have mercy on. And, 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 and how is it that you obtain mercy? That, that you come and you, and, you, and you humble yourself before the Lord. You don't come with a haughty spirit and you don't come with a pointing your finger at God. And how, do, how dare you and how dare you and who, who do you think you are and you're not, a, you're not a good God and you're not a perfect God? Well, let's look at your culture. Let's look at what you're involved in. Let's look, let's look at what you support. Let's look at what, and when the, when the, when the fingers are point, turned on the other direction, let's put it this way. No one left to their own selves apart from Christ would be left standing. <laughs> so God's in pretty good shape in terms of his righteousness and his justice and his, and his divine election. Amen? Yes. And he's so long-suffering. That's the amazing thing where you get people that want to charge God with some type of unrighteousness and somehow he's in the wrong for the things he's done. Because when you look at the, you read the, the Old Testament, the only thing you can come away with is God is an amazing God. Okay, so that's where it goes in. Verse 23, or 25. He says, and he says also in Hosea, he says, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not my beloved and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they, shall, there they should be called the sons of the living God. So what is he saying to Hosea? Okay, just a short little picture of the book of Hosea, a minor prophet. The minor prophets are minor in length, not in importance, Amen. Hosea was a prophet of God, and he was instructed by God to go marry, get this, a prostitute named Gomer. And his life and his marriage became a picture. If you read Hosea, here, here it is. It's a picture of God going after the one he loves and being willing to go and get and literally pull his bride out of prostitution, having prostituted herself. And what's the picture? This is none other than the picture of God and his bride Israel. That here he had done everything and loved Israel and done everything. And he was the God that brought them out of Egypt and brought them out. They were the apple of his eye. They, he, they were carried on eagles' wings. And here they had gone and prostituted themselves. And Hosea's life becomes this picture. So what happens is that one of Hosea's children with Gomer was called, his name, what it meant was, you are not my people. <laughs> and so 
it's, it's this picture of just Israel just completely in utter outright rebellion. But what does he say in Hosea? And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that there will be called, they will be called sons of the living God. So you have to go back and look at the history of Israel in this particular time, how they prostituted themselves with the, with the foreign gods. I mean, when you look at, at the time of Elijah, by the time it gets to Elijah, we know how bad it is. Right? I mean, we know like numerically how bad it is because Elijah is just like, I'm, I'm done. This is, this is crazy. This is, this is, this is, this is an abomination. And, and God actually settles him down and says, no, there's a remnant of 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee and haven't kissed the bales, haven't, haven't bowed their knee and kissed the bales. Right? The gods. Here's what's amazing about God. That was enough for God. I'm reading that and I'm going, 7,000? Are you kidding me? There were 2 million that God brought out of Egypt. How do you know that? Well, the book of Numbers tells us there were 600,000 fighting age men. When you do the math, it's just the general population math, most scholars have put the number at about 2 million that came out of Egypt and eventually came into the land. Into, into the land. So all this time passes and God does all this stuff and gives them Jerusalem and gives them the land and they all have an inheritance and they all have, you know, cities of refuge and they all have all the... And you get down to it and there's seven to 7,000 left? Um... Elijah went into de depression, deep depression. You know, he was in a cave, just waiting on God to just send him, just bring him meat from the birds, right? That's how bad it was. So whenever you think like, oh man, it's raised up and we're the high and mighty. No, no, no. No. It, it, left to ourselves, left with, without Christ, we're, 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 we're a desperate people. He goes on. He says, even Isaiah says, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. I mean, here, here he's referencing the fact that Abraham was told that his seed, remember what God told Abraham? Look at the sand of the sea. That, the sand of the Right? That, that, that'll be your, your offspring. And look at the stars, and that'll be your offspring. And at the, and at the end of it, this chapter actually brings forth that, that, past, that principle as well, is that there is, there, is a, there is an Israel that is Israel by the flesh, and there's an Israel that's Israel by the Spirit. There's an Israel by the work of the flesh, by the means of the flesh, by the will of flesh, by the will of man, by the will of just basic procreation. And then there's Israel by the Spirit, right? And in, in Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had 
left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like, made like Gomorrah. And of course, we know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, the example there is that Abraham pleaded for Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the angels? Remember the three came. The three came and had the meal with Abraham. And one was the Lord, right? It was a Christophany. And the other two were the angels of the Lord sent to bring the judgment upon Sodom and, and literally get Lot's family out of there. Well, remember, Abraham had pleaded with Sodom, or God for Sodom. and said, you know, if there's 50 righteous, would you save it? If there's 40, if there's 30, got all the way down to 10. God would have saved it for 10, but evidently there weren't 10. There were like four, and it actually ended up being three. <laughs> so you want to talk about, you know, this is what he says, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left, left us a seed, he pulled three people, he, three, he pulled three seeds out of, out of, uh, out of Sodom. We would have been like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. So how does he finish this up? What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So what is the condition of Israel? The present condition of Israel is that they had rejected Christ and they had not pursued a righteousness by faith, but they had pursued it by, by works of the law. And so it was a works thing and not a faith thing. And, and not a trusting thing in the provision of Christ and the provision of God and what God had done. And so ultimately, they were in that place of rejection, of rejection. Now, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the, 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 this whole chapter, and of course, Paul didn't write it in chapters and verses, but here we have it marked out for us in chapters and verses. You go back to the, the beginning of this particular argument. How did it begin? Paul said, I wish I could be cut off for my brothers. I, if I could be cut off for, for, for the sake of my brothers because they're in this condition, and he goes through the complete whole chapter that we've gone through in the divine election and how God is chosen and how God is absolutely just in this and bringing it all the way down to the fact that God is going to have a remnant of those people upon the earth who genuinely have responded by faith to him in, and are receiving righteousness. Amen? Amen. And, the, and, the, and the caveat and the warning, he says, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone. Right? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And God is building a whole new building. They rejected it. They said, oh, we're not going to. And here's the state. You want to talk about, let's bring this. So this was Romans, probably written in the 60s AD, 60s to 70s AD, maybe a little bit later. Coming full, full forward almost 2,000 years, where are we now? Well, where we are now is where 
Israel's basically in the same condition. Because one of the things that the, the, the only way you can observe Judaism, this is what always gets me when someone says, well, uh, I'm a practicing Jew. <laughs> okay? The only way you can be, quote unquote, a practicing Jew is because they've had to reform it to fit the condition, the current condition, which is they have no temple and they have no priesthood, and they have no sacrifices, which is to say you have no Judaism. But I'm a practicing Jew, right? God has, I find it interesting, and I'll close with this. God is, a, I think one of, the, one of the things you get out of this chapter is the choice of God, that man has responsibility before God, that God is merciful and has offered that mercy to anyone who will call upon his name and that he's also long-suffering and, that, the, at the, and, and that, the, that his patience is still there. He had to bring about the destruction of the sacrificial system. So we know that after the crucifixion, it was literally, according to the datings that I've seen, and I have basically looked at this, that there was about 38 years to the, from the cross to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, which was the exact amount of time that Israel wandered in the desert you say, well, no, it wasn't. It was 40 years. No, they were at Sinai receiving the law and receiving all the plans and all that for a year plus. They came out on Passover. They were at Sinai for a year and a half. So some, some part of 38 years was the amount of time that that generation basically wandered until he brought the next generation over by Joshua into Israel. He let one more generation pass 38 years from the cross to the destruction when Titus came in and brought the, the Romans brought the destruction of Israel and destroyed the temple. And from that moment forward, there's been no sacrifices. There's been no keeping of the law, so to speak. So that is the present condition. Um, where are we headed? We're moving forward in time where God is bringing his plan to fruition and in the meantime, he's still a merciful God. Yes. The call of salvation is still there. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved.